0: It's Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is the Daily Dive. President-elect Joe Biden has announced his nominees for his top national security team. Some of the names include Tony Blinken for Secretary of State, Alejandro Mayorkas for Department of Homeland Security, Avril Haines for Director of National Intelligence, and John Kerry as climate envoy. Carol Morello Diplomatic correspondent at the Washington Post joins us for who they are and how these picks have often pushed for policies that Trump used to fuel his rise. Next, China has successfully launched its most ambitious mission to the moon yet. It's a quick grab-and-go mission to bring back some lunar rocks and dirt. If they succeed, it will be the first time since 1976 that we will have fresh moon rocks back here on Earth. There's a complicated process for the mission and they hope to be back in about 23 days. Lauren Grush senior science writer at The Verge, joins us for more on the Chinese Moon mission. Finally, retailers are preparing for another surge of shoppers as we see rising cases of coronavirus and in some areas, new rounds of lockdown. All the while, essential workers continue to go into work and put their health at risk. Hazard pay incentives that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic have not come back and some companies don't plan on bringing it back. Michael Corkery, business reporter at the New York Times, Join us for more on the lack of coronavirus hazard pay. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: While this team has unmatched experience and accomplishments, they also reflect the idea that we cannot meet these challenges with old thinking and unchanged habits.
0: Joining us now is Carol Morello, diplomatic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Carol. Happy to be with you. President-elect Joe Biden has announced his top national security team. You know, a lot of these names people might not be familiar with, but they've been involved in government before with the Obama administration and in the agencies very closely associated with the agencies that they're going to lead. Just very briefly, I want to throw some names out there. Antony Blinken is Joe Biden's pick to be his secretary of state. We have Alejandro Mayorkas. He's going to be Homeland Security Secretary we have jake sullivan he's going to be the national security advisor john Kerry. he's going to be special envoy for climate and we have a few other names in there so carol help us walk through some of this what do these announcements mean for how joe biden is going to change national security for us
2: they represent the establishment here in washington in some ways it's a real repudiation of a lot of president trump's policies but it's not like they all grew up as part of the establishment. Many of them like Jake Sullivan is from Minnesota and still has deep roots there. Linda Thomas Greenfield, who's going to be the next U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, comes from Louisiana and went to school there and talks about practicing gumbo diplomacy that she would cook up for people. So, a lot of these are very down to earth people. Maybe not all of them, but they have now become part of the Washington establishment. It's for a lot of people, it's a return to normalcy. These are all smart, experienced people who are sophisticated in the world and are kind of internationalists, which is just a fancy word of saying they think the United States needs to get together with like-minded countries with allies and work on global problems together that the United States alone can't solve them. But they realize that the world has changed in four years and there's going to have to be some recalibration.
0: Yeah, when President Trump came into power, it was very much made pretty clear that he wanted to reverse a lot of things that President Obama did. And I guess with some of these picks, Joe Biden is doing some of the same. But as you just mentioned, the world is a completely different place now. And these people, these picks that he's making, understand that. And they know that they have to contend with some of the things that President Trump has changed.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. I was talking with a former State Department official yesterday who knows all these people very well, and he said he keeps telling people, reminding them of the story of Lot, who was fleeing with his wife from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife ignored the Lord's order and turned around and looked backwards and turned into a pillar of salt. And he said, we can't look backwards. We know we can't look backwards or we'll all become a pillar of salt. There are some things they're probably going to do quite immediately, like I believe has has already said that he wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords on day one. But other things will take some time.
0: A lot of these people are part of the establishment that has, you know, kind of changed as well. But it's important to note that they do have a lot of relationships with a lot of Republican lawmakers, which we would hope that that would smooth over some of the confirmation hearings. But we can hopefully see maybe some bipartisanship working out through there. The allies Know them as well. So they're going to be ready to step in and start working. The the learning curve for them will be a lot quicker, basically.
2: Obviously, John Kerry's met almost, you know, when he was Secretary of State, he met almost every leader in the world, you know, but he is not going back as Secretary of State. He's going back to be basically climate change czar. And that's really his greatest passion. And he was instrumental in getting the United States and negotiating the Paris Climate Accord that President Trump withdrew from. He also was the key negotiator in pushing through the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump called the worst agreement ever negotiated. But Kerry will have nothing to do with Iran. He will have everything to do with climate. And I think that attitudes in the United States have changed since 2016 about climate change. So there is definitely going to be some sort of an immediate reversal there. That's clear. But the others, Jake Sullivan, who's going to be the National Security Advisor, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, both of them are well-known. Tony Blinken, they're all known all across the world. They have contacts. They can pick up the phone. It's not going to be like people will be meeting them for the first time and saying, who is this person? How can I get along with them? They already have relationships with people. It's a very experienced group.
0: President-elect Biden has said that he wants to make his cabinet uh, very diverse and reflect America. We're, we do have some firsts in this as well. And Alejandro Mayorkas he's going to be the nation's first Latino Homeland Security Secretary. And Avril Haines, she's going to be the first female director of national intelligence. She was a former deputy director of the CIA. So we do have some big firsts in there as well.
2: We have some big firsts there, and there are probably more to come in coming days. This is just the national security team, which has relied heavily on uh, experienced people who tend to be older. So in coming days and weeks, we're probably going to see some newer faces who are going to be introduced to America. So we have a lot more first coming, I think. But this is some indication that he wants people to tell him what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear.
0: Carol Morello. Diplomatic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
3: They all go to the moon together, and then an orbiter will insert itself into orbit around the moon, and then eventually a lander with an ascent vehicle on top will break away from the rest of the package, if you will, and descend down to the surface of the moon.
0: Joining us now is Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Lauren.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: China successfully launched one of its most ambitious missions to the moon to date on Tuesday. The plan is they're going to set a little lander down on the moon. They're going to collect some rock samples and then bring it all back. It's a quick grab and go type mission. They're hoping that they'll be back in about a month, really. So Lauren, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning in this mission.
3: So this is Chang'e 5. It's the latest in a string of missions that China has been doing over the last decade. The last notable mission to the moon was last year where they sent a lander to the far side of the moon, which was the first time that any nation had done that. So now what China is doing is trying to elevate itself even further by bringing back samples from the lunar surface, which only two countries have ever done before. The first was the United States and also the former Soviet Union, which did the last lunar sample return back in 1976. So if it's successful, it's the first time in decades that we'll be getting moon rocks back to Earth once again.
0: Tell us how it's going to work once they get out to the moon and how it's going to work to collect the samples and then get them back
3: it's almost like a very complicated puzzle. There's four different spacecraft involved that'll be working in tandem to bring this sample back. So they all go to the moon together and then an orbiter will insert itself into orbit around the moon. And then eventually a lander with an ascent vehicle on top will break away from the rest of the package, if you will, and descend down to the surface of the moon From there, the lander will scoop up the materials it needs, hoping to gather between two to four kilos of material. That will then transfer into the ascent module, which is basically sitting on top of the lander. And that will act like a mini rocket and take off from the moon, and then dock with the spacecraft that will be in orbit around the moon. Then they'll head back to Earth together. (laughs) And eventually that sample will transfer into the fourth vehicle, which is an Earth reentry vehicle. And that's the one that will break away. It'll come back to Earth, actually skip on our atmosphere, and then dive into the planet and eventually land in Inner Mongolia.
0: And I know they're, they're outfitting all these things with cameras. Are we going to get some video out of this? Do you think that they'll share all of this stuff? If it's successful, I mean, it's going to be a big moment of pride for them, obviously.
3: China has usually been pretty good about sharing things once they've done them. But for this mission, I have some hope because there was actually an English live stream version of the launch, which is kind of rare with these missions. Usually what they'd like to do is declare victory after the fact. So I'm actually pretty hopeful that we will get some good visuals. And then also, I know that the scientific community is very eager for getting these samples back. So the place that this mission is going to is considered to be a very young place on the moon. It's very smooth compared to the rest of the moon. So they think there might have been some kind of late volcanic activity on this area. And so scientists all over the world are very eager to learn about what the rocks are like in this region. And it could tell us a lot more about the moon and its formation and its history.
0: Is it particularly hard to mine rocks on the moon?
3: it's hard to get to the moon for for one thing. <laughs> right, so yeah. landing on the moon at all is probably your biggest bet. But then once you're there, the regolith is pretty powdery, so it just depends on where you land and i believe that China is well equipped to actually scoop up the material it needs.
0: You know, some of the people that you were talking to were saying that you know, this is kind of uh, more of a practice run for maybe future crewed missions to the moon. So that's why they're going through this very elaborate process of having that orbiter there and the ascent module and all that stuff. So this is going to be a big learning moment for them for future travel in space.
3: One thing that China does very well is kind of improving upon each of its missions and using its missions to learn and then do much more ambitious missions in the future. And a lot of people have been making the comparisons between this flight and the Apollo mission profile, the one that we sent to the moon to put humans on the surface of the moon. And I think the biggest clue is this, rendezvous and docking that will be happening in orbit around the moon. That would be very key for a future mission to send astronauts to the lunar surface. So there are definitely some clues in this mission profile that point to even more ambitious missions that China has on its radar in the future.
0: They're looking at 23 days or so for this to be all done and maybe come back. So quick turnaround. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do and if they're successful. And, you know, we wish them luck for all that.
3: And they have to get it done soon, too, because they're not built to withstand the lunar nighttime on the moon surface where the moon gets plunged into darkness for two weeks and the temperatures drop well below minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So they have to get it done quickly. It must operate in that two week time span when it's not nighttime on the moon. So hopefully they can get it done and we'll have some moon rocks before the end of the year.
0: Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The heroes of the COVID war are not the elite. They're not the most well-off. The heroes were the hardworking, talented, and principled women and men of labor. Joining us now is Michael Corkery, business reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Everybody remembers at the beginning of the pandemic when there was a lot of lockdowns going on, there was all of our essential people kind of running the country, uh, these essential employees, a lot of them in retail and other sectors, they were getting hazard pay, a pay bump, either hourly or bonuses, kind of to thank them for still having to go to work and also to persuade them to keep going to work. You know, a lot of people were calling out sick or just quitting jobs altogether because they were scared of what the coronavirus was doing out there. Well, right now we're seeing cases rise. We're seeing new lockdowns in some places, but these people aren't getting new hazard pay. They aren't seeing pay bumps. And uh, it's calling into question a lot of companies who did it at the beginning, you know, when they're seeing huge profits right now in these quarterly earnings that they're reporting. So Michael, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning about this.
1: It's a really different situation, as you mentioned, than early in the pandemic for a couple of reasons the first you know it's not for these are companies and so I think they do appreciate their workers and sacrifices some of these workers were making early in the pandemic. but early on in March and April they also were dealing with like a lot of absenteeism and workers were either getting sick or afraid of getting sick, had family members that were getting sick and weren't showing up to work and there was also at that time very very generous, unemployment benefits. That was when there was this supplemental $600 a week. So in order to incentivize people early on, the companies needed to raise wages. They needed to come up with these big bonuses. Now, fast forward to this latest deadly wave of the coronavirus, and the situation has changed a lot. The unemployment benefits are gone. Congress has not voted to extend them. The economy. Unemployment. And I think the feeling, although the companies would not admit this publicly, but if you talk to economists and analysts, they will say that they have the leverage now that employees, even if they are afraid of coming to work, they need to work. They need to go back to work because there isn't the same safety net that there was if they decided not to go to work as there was in March, April and May. So that's a big change. And I think that's a big driver of why the very generous Hazard pay and appreciation pay and the raises that were offered early on are not being extended right now.
0: And what are we seeing from some of the top companies, Amazon, Walmart, Kroger? They all had some form of this at the beginning. You know, some of them don't have plans to extend this so-called hazard pay or anything. What are we looking at with some of these top companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, those three that you just mentioned, Amazon, for instance, early on was giving $2 an hour pay raises. That's really significant when you're someone who, you know, making $15 an hour to go up to $17 an hour, that makes a big difference. Kroger, same thing. Plus Kroger was giving cash bonuses on top of that. Walmart never raised wages. They did give a series of three bonuses. I think if you average it out, if you're a full-time worker at Walmart, you've got a bonus of $900 total through all of this as appreciation for your work during the pandemic. But some would say none of that was enough. And yes, it has not continued. None of those companies, when I spoke to them last week, Had any plans of extending those bonuses or pay raises in any appreciable way as the cases go back up?
0: Yeah, I think some of the thinking about that too is, you know, if you extend pay temporarily, the expectations are going to be that that's going to be permanent. I mean, that's kind of what happened when the hazard pay kind of went away the first time around. But there have been a few bright spots. Companies like Best Buy, Home Depot. I think Best Buy specifically raised their hourly wage for employees. I think Home Depot was trying to do some weekly bonus type thing. So there are companies that are still trying to provide that benefit for their employees. And beyond that, there's some other programs that businesses can apply for. There was a weird thing. I guess there was a few companies that said, we don't want to use it. You know, we're maybe too big, save them for smaller businesses. But even those companies have come back and tried to apply for grants for their employees as well.
1: There are certain standout companies. You mentioned Best Buy. They have raised their wages and Home Depot. So that's a permanent thing. Home Depot, they've raised their wages. It's not clear how much their wages are going to go up. They just said this last week on their earnings call, how much it's going to go up per worker. So it's a little unclear how generous that will be. But Home Depot was giving out a weekly bonus all the way through until last week. So they started in March and went all the way through. So that was a good positive thing they were doing for their workers. So. There are some standouts. I think the thing that these companies have to contend with is that the public and the shopping public, I think they have a new appreciation for the work that retail workers have done through this pandemic and continue to do. These are cashiers and the folks stocking the shelves and never before have they in any context been thought of as essential workers. But this time when the public realized that if, if these folks weren't showing up for work or couldn't show up for work, then it would be a problem with getting food to put you know, on your family's table. I think people have an appreciation for how vital these roles are. And I think, therefore, there is a new appreciation that these workers should be paid more. And I yeah. think that sort of mentality, that attitude on the public's part, may start putting pressure on the company to raise pay.
0: Michael Corkery, business reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you.